associated with uh, model railroading per se. Very good. But those two things may be necessary. And actually, having finished recording our last chat, uh, Chris, the next day, actually, my wife is normally around me while I'm recording, and she heard me refer to a jigsaw on a couple of occasions. So um, a gift was produced, which had been wrapped and and ready to present to me on uh, on the particular day, but was given to me early. And it was a handheld jigsaw, an electric jigsaw. And within probably about 24 hours, I had pulled down the previous shelf layout and assembled, based on your instructions, a three-level, what are they called, ladder with plywood on top shelf layout. And I posted the photos on on Facebook. I, I know you saw some of them. And just from the track from the previous layout and some other spare track, I was able to lay um, what looks like might be an interesting probably three uh, industry uh, layout with some switching at the main kind of head end, the end that I'm closest to, and uh, a couple of uh, levels going round past my computer. So I think uh, Model Rail Radio has provided enough inspiration for me to uh, to build that. And it was really within 24 hours of our last recording. Since that time, 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I was thinking about asking you this actually in the show, but you own cats, don't you? Yes, I have three cats, yeah. And in terms of their interaction with your model railroading hobby, have you had any problems associated with having cats? <laughs> um, yes and no. If, if I'm foolish enough to leave something lying around that's, that's, uh, that's colorful or crinkly, yes, it will be attacked and, and mauled and batted around incessantly. Um, so far, I've been lucky enough to have a a door between the cats and my hobby. Um, if I'm going to build a layout in this basement, I won't have that luxury, so I'll have to come up with some other methodology of keeping them off of it or training them not to get on it. Uh, but the adventurous one will, will go anywhere he likes. So um, we'll have to come up with a new, a new world order to, uh, to see that this doesn't uh, become a problem. Yes, well, we, we have an adventurous one as well, and over the holiday period, he developed a taste for switches, um, and he took two turnouts out um, pretty swiftly, uh, one after the other, and now he knows what they are, and he knows that they can provide at least half an hour of amusement until they're ripped to shreds. So I'm not sure whether I'm going to redesign the layout based on that. The, the actual shelf is about five feet off the ground, but he's sufficiently smart, and having gotten a taste for uh, turnouts, I'm considering that I will probably have to do something similar. The loft area is actually a central point within our house. It kind of leads the master bedroom to um, the, the guest bedroom and the downstairs area. So it would be pretty impossible to isolate it from our cats. But this uh, particular cat um, has, has taken a liking to turnouts, so I'm not sure how I'm going to tame him of that uh, perhaps to say that um, aside from the first two which he took his, uh, his interest has waned recently and so my hope is that he's found other things to destroy uh, but it was a, a point of contention I was um, working through most of the holiday period and he took the first one out early on in the holidays and I moved the remaining turnouts but according to my wife, he was able to get a wire and from pulling a wire down was able to get a, another turnout down and left the rest of the track alone but just concentrated on the turnout, which according to my wife, he kind of played like a guitar until the um, actual track had come up. So, yeah, it's a problem that I'm considering currently. I had thought about actually putting wood ends on either side of the shelf just to avoid them jumping up, but it sounds like he... Luckily, he had uh, knocked it sufficiently that a wire had come down and he was able to pull some stuff down based on that. But cat-proofing is definitely on the to-do list uh, with, regards to, uh, with regards to getting the layout. So with regards to New Year's resolutions, Chris, I know we talked about this briefly um, on the last podcast, but then we had uh, the, the wonderful chance to chat with Duncan McCree. So I think probably uh, our particular New Year's resolutions trailed off. I did much of my New Year's resolution actually before the New Year, thanks to having an electric jigsaw and a bit of time on my hands. Um, but in terms of your New Year's resolutions, have you done any more planning or any more thinking towards them? Uh, yes, actually, done a lot of thinking about what's going to happen in the upcoming year. And of course, there's a lot more plans than there is possible time to do the work in. So I'm going to have to prioritize and and see what I can generate in terms of uh, free time to, to actually make this happen. I, I really 
desperately want to get the live steam engine running so that I can participate uh, in the uh, weekend or weekday evening runs uh, in the summer months uh, with the other fellows in the group. And I'd really like to have some of my S-scale uh, work done so that I can uh, add some value, some more value to the modular display at the various shows that we attend. And other than that, um, there are many things that need doing around the house, including insulating the very, very cold uh, basement, which will require erection of stud walls and, and insulation vapor barrier, drywall, all that good stuff, as uh, nothing's been done in the 50-odd years since the house was built. So it's, um, it's a bit overdue. And I'm managing at the moment, but once that's complete, there's going to be a, a space for a layout, finally. So you have and, management approval? Well, yes, uh, there, is, there is management approval or, or um, uh, planning authority approval uh, already, <laughs> but it's, um, the question is, what am I actually going to build? Uh, I model in S-scale primarily, but I have interest in... in uh, two distinct narrow gauge prototypes, um, and I also have uh, an interest in in UK industrial railways in in British O scale seven millimeters. So, if I were to build a layout at home in the basement, it's no longer uh, a done deal that it would be an S scale standard gauge. It it could be in anything, frankly. Um, and I'm I'm having a bit of a a crisis trying to decide what what route to take. I can't have them all um, because there simply isn't enough space. I don't have an aircraft hangar for a basement, and uh, um, I, I'm I don't know. There's there's points in favor of all of them, and I'm a bit, at a bit of a loss right now. So, is it? I mean, I've seen. Um through through various magazines and things, examples of people doing two scales on the one layout with a kind of forced compression. But it sounds like the stuff that you're describing is so so diverse in terms of kind of region and possibly time and these kind of things that would be really impossible to to. I mean, it's not a your problem isn't primarily just scale. It's also the the areas and the kind of things that you would topically put in a in a one of these. Layout, so it would probably be impossible to merge two of your interests in a single layout, wouldn't it? There, there is one possibility for the standard gauge and 42-inch narrow gauge to be uh, properly juxtaposed on a home layout. Um, on the island of Newfoundland, there was a an area, port area, where they had a standard gauge yard to accept uh, cars from the mainland. Uh, from the ferry, where they would be switched to uh, narrow-gauge trucks and uh, then uh, routed to a, a narrow-gauge yard and taken across the island to the other points uh, of destination. Uh, the, potential, uh, the potential is there, but it would require the entire basement, and that's not on the planning board's uh, uh, list of uh, acceptable uh, options. Understood. Is it possible to just pick particular scenes i mean it sounds like the kind of docks coming off the ferry is a critical part and probably some of the stuff that you were describing with regards to the interchange yard is a critical part 
Is it possible just to pick maybe three or four scenes from from the air in Newfoundland, or is it something where really you, you want to do more than you have the space for? Well, it would be possible to make uh, to incorporate three or four distinct scenes with view blocks that would allow you to capture the flavor, but uh, you would have virtually no operational possibilities because it wouldn't be big enough to uh, to route anything anywhere. You'd, you'd get part of each yard in plus the transfer facility where they change the trucks uh, from standard narrow gauge and vice versa, and then you'd have nowhere to go you'd be out of space um in in what i have for my my given area um unless i can somehow tunnel in through the through the wall into the backyard and cover it over with something so for the benefit of of those listening in and, and me as well roughly how much area do you actually have to build a layout i would have approximately uh 21 feet by 12 feet, sort of the two two walls of that, um, sort of an L shape, okay. and I may be able to run a peninsula uh, down, well, out from that, so a U shape in that space, or slightly less than that space. But I don't want any duck unders. I don't want any spiral helix arrangements. I don't want any anything like that. So. And I have to, to leave room for all of the other things that are necessary in the home, all storage of files and books and uh, computer equipment and um, uh, Christmas decorations and all that good stuff. I can't, I can't be heavy-handed and uh, take over the whole space. So everything has to coexist quite peacefully. And the cats, I have to, you know, I have to be aware that they're going to um find this a fascinating new addition to the space to the play uh, addition to the space more importantly so it sounds like you would construct if you were to do a layout you would construct it a, a, a higher perhaps than than a standard uh a standard um basement layout were you planning on doing it about 5 feet or were you planning on doing it 4 feet or what the height would you construct it at uh, I'd probably go for the just under the basement window uh, window ledge, which would put me at about 50, 56 inches, 56 to 54 inches in height. Um, there is a possibility if I if I were to extend the layout through a wall, uh, through a, a natural barrier, and go into where the furnace room is, I could probably add some staging to that, but then I would start to get into restricted access spaces and and whatnot. But it's all going to depend on what the ultimate configuration of the basement ends up being. And once once everything's insulated and finished off nicely, then it's going to look oh completely different than it does now and uh, we may my wife want may want to do something else with the basement put a, a lounge in or something um not that she she's not a basement dweller she prefers the bright sunlight and whatnot but she may want something uh, a work area of her own and uh i would have to uh naturally accommodate that in the design so um it's going to require thought and and discussion and compromise and all the good things that come from domestic bliss 
So uh, in the end, it'll be it'll be as much as I can manage and no more. I guess is the is the phrase I'm looking for. But uh, I'm I'm tempted to dabble in the seven millimeter, even to make a a micro layout or something in the two and a half by five foot range because the industrial equipment is so small anyway. Um, I, I could do quite a decently featured um, industrial scene in that kind of space, and I could hide that away um, from from the cats in the, in the utility area uh, when it wasn't in use. So that's always a possibility to sort of uh, satisfy that, that itch. Certainly. In addition, yeah. And I mean, it sounds like you. So, the the windows you were saying are are roughly fifty six inches off the ground. Yeah. Around okay. And again, I don't really have a a, a, a visual. mental visualization of the space. Are there multiple windows at that height, or are there just a couple that at various there would be, points? There would be two that were affected uh, at that height. Um, a third one, if I was to extend it into a staging kind of an area. Um, where I can't I can't block the windows um, for both safety reasons and ventilation reasons and and whatnot, uh, but I don't want to put the layout down at such a level that it interferes with um, like a standard office desk or a, a monitor, a computer, or whatnot. That should all be able to fit underneath the uh, the layout. And uh, we had touched briefly on discussing shelf layouts and what defines a shelf layout and and how it differs from an around-the-walls layout and all the other nomenclature that gets tossed around in, in the hobby. Um, and I was thinking to, for my own purposes, I would consider a shelf layout as a layout without legs uh, that didn't come down to the floor and obstruct or uh, extru- obstruct your foot uh, foot traffic and the floor itself. So uh, something with uh, something built on shelf standards, like uh, the ones used in uh, stores for displays, with the locking uh, L brackets that snap into them and can be adjusted up and down, or that are lag bolted to a wall uh, with uh, like a concrete wall, or indeed to the uh, to a uh, wall stud uh, screwed into either the face or the side and leaving all the space underneath it completely free and unencumbered so that you can put filing cabinets and desks and bookshelves and all that other good stuff underneath. Totally. Uh, that's, that's how I look at a shelf layout. Um, and that, that sort of construction is, um, leads along the idea that you, you can't have it extending too far out from the wall because the weight at the far end is going to act as a, as a lever and perhaps over time or through misadventure will will cause the uh, the layout to, to tilt on the wall or be pulled away from the wall at the top. And if you lean on it accidentally, somebody uh, falls against it, stumbles and falls against it, or uh, simply if the fasteners are, are not strong enough, the weight of the buildings and the hydrocal and the engines and everything, uh, you know, out it, two feet from the wall could, could prove too much. Um, and the weight of the bench work itself, of course. Certainly. But, you know, so maybe you could have a shelf layout that only had one leg or two legs down at the, 
the wider yard area of it at one end or something, or at a turn-back loop where you're trying to get a continuous run-in uh, without having the um, without uh, resorting to the four by eight uh, or five by nine ping-pong table-sized oval, uh, like a dog bone or um, what was uh, the, the term riata, uh, like a, a lasso. Uh, with a long, long skin bit and then a bulb at the end. So, um, but it, you know, half the fun of half the fun of of, of building a layout can be just sitting down and discussing all the possibilities of what you can fit in the space, and and you'll end up with an innumerable number of of uh, envelopes and and uh, serviettes and and whatnot with scribblings on them and bits of scrap paper and. And doodles that have that have uh, as much track as possible stuffed into the space, and little grid, graph paper grids marked out to see what you can fit. And uh, you know you can spend a lot of time just uh, that sort of navel gazing, but until you actually define what aspects you want to capture and what your minimum um, minimum, I guess. Well, you're back to the Gibbons and Druthers, but but what your minimum desires are, what you have to have as, as part of the scene, like you want, I know in Ben's case, he wants to have a waterfront scene with some uh, lobster pots and fishing boats and, and whatnot on, on the layout he's working on. And, uh, you know, that, that demands uh, water and sealed, sealed edges to pour your epoxy or put your varnish in and, uh, changes in elevation to get your piers and pilings in and and all sorts of things. And you have to plan that out very, very not definitively at the beginning, but uh, to, a, to a certain level of uh, completeness so that you get all of your stacked layers of, of uh, terrain in, uh, in rough approximation of what you need for the finished goods so that you can go ahead and, uh, and do the scenery. You don't want to be building something and then cutting away a third of it halfway along to say, well, I've got to put a, a pier in here, so I have to cut away this fascia and, and uh, bench work in order to accommodate it. You want to uh, uh, allow for that at the beginning, in my opinion, again. Certainly, certainly. Well, when I constructed the shelf a few weeks ago, there was a section which was relatively blank, and just by chance I had made, with some of the leftover wood from the first shelf, about a five-foot by, I guess, one-foot um, layout with some um, undulating blocks that I then textured um, to look like basic small rolling hills that I was going to do a very small UK switching layout on. I had probably three wire switches and um, a few uh, number fives. And when I went downstairs, it was in our library area, it caught my eye one one evening, and I realized that that actually fitted in perfectly in the space that I had available. So I took it back upstairs, um, fitted it in, removed some track down, and it worked perfectly. I think my background was regards to doing small shelf layouts prior to this in the table layout downstairs. has always been... Hours and hours and hours, as you say, in my case, in a computer simulator, designing the track for the various spaces and then going back and replanning and then actually running um, virtual trains over the track and these kind of things. 
And the way that I did the, the current layout was very different. So I had some existing track and I kind of flapped it down in terms of the basic features that I wanted and then found a large gap and then, as I said, went downstairs, found this track and put it in. So I don't know which is, which is better. In some regard, I think the, my sense of temporality with regards to the current layout makes me kind of take more risks in terms of just throwing bits and pieces together. But also the um, ability to have multiple levels in terms of track, clearly there's some industry going on at some level and then it joins at a, the, the largest level and then there's a dip down at the end, uh, which could have a probably a small quarry industry or something similar at the end of it. These things all kind of were, were I guess, really part of the, the given. The linking parts became the um, the druthers component with regards to how it was all going to link up. But uh, I, I agree with you. I think there are, there, there are two real extremes here, um, and somewhere along the line one needs to go fishing with regards to these kind of things. So you've, you've given some description where you think it's probably going to be a UK-style shelf layout with some kind of operating interest or if it's in the if it's in the smaller format it won't be a shelf layout it'll be something that you put away and bring out is that what you're saying well yeah for as as i said it's it's uh, it's a toss up now because i'm finding i have a problem the problem is my friend trevor uh, my friend trevor has enough reference books and enough experience in the hobby that that he can draw upon any sort of uh, prototype inspiration from anywhere around the world during a conversation says that reminds me exactly of the railways in in Honolulu Hawaii during the war or that reminds me of the two-foot uh, railways of South Africa or, or whatnot and pulls out this wonderfully illustrated picture book with all these tremendous photographs in it and, and track plans and diagrams and um, it, it's all very tempting you see and it's not part of my my primary primary modeling scale and uh you can't as i said you can't have everything i started off earlier i started off in ho uh, left the hobby for a long time came back and did n scale found that unsatisfying went to s scale and thought this is good this will do me um this is exactly what i'm looking for and subsequently to that uh, and I would say probably in the last five years, there's been an explosion of history books uh, made available to the to the hobbyist um, with incredible quantities of, of uh, accurate and colorful documentation that you didn't have available before, you didn't know about it, and you say, oh my goodness, isn't this tremendous, the, the railways of Spain and Portugal and uh, you know, uh, Bayer Garretts and and uh, Kits and Meyer locomotives trundling through the most amazing scenic areas, and you say, "Well, gee, you know, the the old GP9 rolling through a, a branch line seems a bit bit uh, pedestrian compared to all this." So, uh, my problem is that uh, that I have access to too much information, and I even within the few the few uh, narrow areas where I have uh, some equipment, some models, and some reference books of my own, there's too much to choose from uh, for the space that I have. I, I can't, as I said, I can't have two or three or four layouts here. I can, 
maybe do a, a shelf layout and a small micro layout uh, at most, and uh, I have to choose carefully what I'm going to, which one I'm going to do. Um, both, both the shelf and the micro layout, by its very nature, I mean the micro layout in particular. It's not that it has a temporary status, but it certainly has a status where it could be packed away at some stage and another micro layout could be built. I remember one of our discussions last year related to one of your friends that did exactly this. So the notion of permanency versus actually going out and doing something seems to be two quite competing ideas. And my wife in particular was quite stunned by I don't know, the, the relatively pedestrian way that I took down and disassembled the first shelf layout and then sawed and, and um, drilled away and produced the next shelf layout and put it up and salvaged as much track as possible and the cat took his tip and, the, you know, the rest was laid out. So in terms of your time commitment, I mean, obviously you want to build something that you're going to be working on for a number of years. But can you factor in the kind of temporality that I'm, I'm talking about, that it may just be something that you work on and then you produce another one, or is it something that you're really thinking that you're going to invest, you know, multiple years in, so you want to get it right the first time? Uh, oh, there's a, there's a whole bunch of points there that, I'd love, that I'm going to address. Uh, the first one is you'll never get it right the first time. Um, it doesn't matter how much you plan. It will never be perfect when it's executed. Uh, the very nature of the materials we use and the fact that it's a reduced version of reality that, that doesn't, uh, where physics does not scale, um, will introduce a number of uh, factors that are going to prevent it from being perfect. You'll have possibly operational difficulties uh, and all the limitations of uh, selective compression that, that you have to put in. Um, you're not running 100-car trains in most cases in most people's basements. So, And also, uh, if, I can, if I can pitch in here, uh, materials, these kind of things. I mean, I learned a lot from assembling what I thought would be a relatively sturdy shelf layout, and in the period of three months got various warping effects and other things. I mean, in terms of laying the track and the effects of track laid on that environment and, you know, putting in ties and seeing how that affected the track. I mean, I think there are so many factors here that one learns from initially that obviously, I guess my question is more obviously, you'll never get it right the first time, but how many times do you need to do it before you get to a point where you can get it right sufficient to actually put in the couple of years worth of effort. But sorry, I'm cutting you off. Please continue. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, how many times do you have to do it? You have to do it uh, again and again and again and again. Um, I know people that, that, that have been in the hobby for 20 and 30 years with the same layout. Hey, Chris, uh, that, do you hear me? Oh. Uh, hello, Ben. Um, I'm a senior in high school. I'm from Westchester, Connecticut, and I'm modeling what is more or less a could-have-been railroad somewhere in eastern New England in the late, late 1920s HS scale. And as you've been listening into the conversation, we've come up to a point where Chris was describing how many times you need to do your first layout before you can actually do something on it 
for a relative <laughs> length of time. What, what's your own experience with regards to how many times you need to do your first layout before you can actually work on it for more than a year? Um, I'm probably on my fourth layout. So serious layout, uh, that's debatable. And how long have you been working on this layout in particular? Mm, six months, maybe. Okay. So you're getting to the point where you're almost about to reach a year. Sorry, Chris, we cut you off introducing Ben. P please continue. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, uh, people who have had the same layout for, for 25 or 30 years, that they, they've started building them in 84 or 85 in some cases. And uh, the thing you have to remember is that regardless of the quality of the materials you use at the outset, you are going to have repairs to, to execute during the life of the layout. So if you build something that's four feet away from the edge that is a complex switching lead, you're building in problems that are going to plague you forever. Uh, uh, once, once the failures begin, they will not get any better, and you will have to then hoist yourself up into the air and suspend yourself from the ceiling in order to work on this, this yard throat. Um, uh, you know, the, the prototype has to do annual maintenance on their track. They have to, to uh, reline, uh, reballast, retamp, uh, fix broken rails, uh, replace worn points and frogs. It's, it's an inevitable function of all things mechanical that they will fail at some point in time. And uh, if, you, if you build something ignoring that, that fact, you are, going to, you are going to suffer for it greatly in the end. I agree so, with you, Chris. <laughs> Don't do anything uh, very complicated. Yeah, don't uh, like you can make a, an extremely complicated yard throat right at the edge of the layout where you can get at it very easily and sit in a chair with your magnifying glass and, and tinker with it and get it perfect. Uh, but don't build it out of your arm's reach behind your three prize uh, scratch built structures that you're going to put your elbow through when you try to re-rail uh, uh, an errant boxcar. Um, mm -hmm. So returning yeah. to your specific problem, Chris, in terms of you having many options currently and a couple of possibilities and mapping your various interests onto those possibilities, you still seem to be, I, I guess I'm still not getting the answer to the question with regards to how you see the temporary nature of what you're constructing or whether you are in fact planning for something that you'll be working on in five years' time. So... Uh. I don't have the mindset of the basement empire. Um, I've, I've been to, to operating sessions and, and uh, layouts where the entire bottom of a 2,000 square foot house floor plan is, is turned over to the, to the railway and a crew of five or six or eight friends have been working on it for 10 years to bring it to some uh, level of operational uh, realization, and I don't have that. That's not part of my scheme. I don't assume that the thing that I start tomorrow will be the same thing that I'm working on five years from now. Um, 
in that respect, I'm probably more in line of what's going on in, in uh, Britain and, and Europe where uh, the layouts are built um, for for a certain... They're built until they're completed and then they're used for a period of time and then they're discarded or recovered or, or uh, disassembled or repurposed uh, simply because the hobby... Uh, my view on the hobby is that it's a continual process of of exploration. You you learn something new every day, uh, some new detail, some new fact, and you will want to rebuild or improve. Or in in my case, my unfortunate case is if I see something that's really neat uh, that I don't do currently, I'd like to explore some thematic aspect. Um, different buildings, different scale, different era. Uh, and I can't, putting that all in one layout is, is a hodgepodge that I, I, I can't accept from an aesthetic standpoint. So I'm going to have to build something specific, use it for a period of time, and then pass it along to someone else in order to uh, promote the hobby further or simply scrap it and, and save what I can. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I'm much more in the temporary camp. There's a definite lifespan to it. It's not going to outlive me. Uh, you know, my my heirs are not going to have to cut the layout apart and ship it out when I'm, <laughs> when I'm gone. You know? So, in terms, in terms of what you have currently, Chris, is it? I mean, will it will it just be a a selection based on what you have currently and what is easiest, or do you have a budget with regards to acquiring new stuff specifically for this layout? Uh, uh, I'd love to say I have a budget because that would imply a plan. Um, <laughs> I, I don't never plan anything. Yeah, it's I I try not to indulge myself too much. Um, the, the live steam engine was a gross indulgence that I don't think I'll repeat. But um, in terms of of the indoor layout, the shelf layout specifically, uh, do I have a budget for obtaining things? No. I, I, I have to say no because in both S-scale and 7mm, you, you have to, if something is made available and it's advertised, uh, it's usually a limited edition or a limited run kit or uh, some number of assembled ready-to-run components. If you don't grab one now, you're not going to get one. And uh, if you have a budget and you say, well, I've only got $50 a month to spend or whatever, and I don't have the money for it this month, by the time you do have the money, chances are you won't get it. So you have to be a little more flexible when you get into the minority scales and narrow gauge uh, instances. If If you're modeling an HO... Uh, contemporary, uh, say from the 50s on up to current, you can pretty much buy whatever you want, whenever you want. Uh, so you can budget and plan much easier than you can if you're doing something in the esoteric or fringe-worthy aspect of the hobby. So certainly, uh, no. Now, I, have a, not... I have a friend and coworker who's a war gamer, and he refers to what you're describing as strategic purchases, which is really the that's far too good to, you know, to, to, to waste at this point, and I won't see that. And you need to actually know the, the probability of the, the item occurring in the wild in the future. So, 
again, you've neatly avoided my question with regards to what you currently hold that could actually utilise what decision you may make. You seem to be ebbing towards the UK initially. Am I hearing um, that right? Well, I yeah. The reason the it's it's difficult to articulate. Basically, if you go on the layout tours and you go to the operating sessions in pretty much any area, what you're going to see is largely mainline railroading in the time frame I, I said earlier, about 50s to, to 80s. You'll see primarily steam to diesel transition and, and uh, second gen and third gen diesel stuff in HO or N scale. And there's a while all of it is executed to a to a pretty decent level of uh, fidelity and they're they're a lot of fun there's after a while there's a uh, a sameness that uh, a feeling of sameness that creeps in and uh i guess it's my contrary nature i, I like to have things that are a little different than the norm so even if i have in s scale if i was to build what i have now uh, as a home layout, in addition to the modular efforts, it's still transition era, uh, mainline or heavy branch line, uh, steam and, and first gen diesels using 36 and 40 foot boxcars. So it's still very much de rigueur. It's not it's not exotic in any way, um, and I just have this kind of perverse streak that would would force me into doing something that's not the same as what everybody else has. Tom, so. I'm, I'm going a little away from the norm, modeling the main waterfront in HO scale narrow gauge, or standard gauge rather, when a lot of people do it in S scale narrow gauge. So, you know, Chris, I imagine you're a little bit into that stuff as well, but about the whole budget thing. I just go with HO scale steam era you know, more or less the major road names. And I just kind of settle for what's available because I don't want to spend, you know, five years just building the rolling stock to run on a layout that I haven't even started building yet. Yeah. You're, you're in a bit of a bind, Ben, because the, uh, the 1920 era is not particularly well represented with motive power right now. You can backdate some things that are commercially available or you can buy some rather poor quality stuff of older vintage and try and get it to run well mechanically, but it's... I just go you, with the Bachman Spectrum steam engines. A couple of them look fine to me. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're, you're willing to accept that compromise in order to achieve your goal of having that, that layout built in a reasonable period of time, and that's, that's what people a lot of people need to do. Some people just sit and plan and plan and plan and say, I'm going to wait and get this locomotive and this boxcar and they end up with nothing. They five years down the road, they still have no layout. And, and that's, that doesn't really yeah, I just give want you to a, build something. Yeah. You don't have a sense of getting anything done in that way. So. And uh, Ben, in terms of, in terms of coming from the promised land of Connecticut with regards to model rail, do you go and see local layouts? Can you describe the, the possible layout tours in your area? Um, there, I've seen a few around. Um, I think I've visited maybe a half dozen layouts in Connecticut. You know, 
that I've personally seen, and I haven't been alive for that long or seriously in Asabi for that long, but I'm sure you could find plenty, plenty, plenty. And you're also you're also a bit of a shaker in the kind of youth model rails movement. Would you like to talk yes. a little bit about that, please? Um, I happen to be on the board of directors of the Teen Association of Model Railroaders, and we're a small association of, like I said, teenagers who are interested in model railroading and rail fanning and stuff, so on and so forth. And in terms of these kind of organisations. I mean, you you've you've talked, I think, on the Model Railcast show previously with regards to that. It was yeah. it was one of the interviews that I've I've heard uh, talking about that. But for folks who haven't heard your interview, um, in terms of just the general structure of the organisation and uh, a little bit about the membership, can you talk about that, please? Um, to be perfectly honest with you, the organisation is in a little bit of a mess right now where membership is down and we're working very hard to promote ourselves and get people involved again but um, yeah, I hate to say I it. mean my own experience with regards to community leadership and these kind of things I, I um, head, head up by the chair or edit two large community organizations and my background with regards to my own projects is very much in that um, in that field in terms of getting a, a wide variety of people involved with things. And certainly you seem to be doing a lot of right things with regards to podcasting. And I'd like to commend your um, your appearance here and your appearance on other podcasts talking about it. Do you get a sense, I'm not sure if you heard the earlier episodes, unfortunately it was one where the better part of the conversation wasn't recorded. Uh, but certainly we have, we have uh, Steve from Chicago in the chat uh, we have obviously, yes, I know, Steve. <laughs> we obviously have Chris on the line as well. Can you describe a little bit about the the kind of problems and interests that you you find with regards to getting teens involved with model railroading? There you go, Tom. In terms of in terms of growing your numbers, I mean, we've talked mm -hmm. a bit here about the the kind of next generation of model railroaders and the problems particularly associated with cost but also just the kind of diverging interests, obviously, computer games and a wide variety of other things that, that captivate young people um, today. But as yeah. you are a model railroader, could you talk a little bit more about how, what you think the hobby offers teens and how to get more teens involved? Well, sure. Um, yeah, unfortunately, in a lot of organizations, you have a few people up at the very top, you know, on the board and so forth, doing a lot of work and not that much happening in, you know, down in the membership body. But um, personally, you know, I'm not that, I'm certainly distracted by, you know, the internet here. I am on an internet radio show, you know, instead of being in the next room working on my layout. But, you know, Certainly. people always come along and you know, they get interested in trains as a kid with the Lionel train set under the tree or whatever. And then high school rolls around and girls and cars and sports and so forth. And, you know, maybe not necessarily the most popular thing, but it's a hobby. It's fun. It's relaxing. And, and you've just... appeared on two podcasts. Have you considered doing your own podcast with regards to teens specifically? <laughs> Uh, that would be a huge demand on my time uh, doing enough with the TAMR as it is. And you have your music as well. Yeah, Chris, would I be sane to do that? 
Well, you have your music as well, Ben, so you can't, you know, serve too many masters at once here. Yeah, you can put music <laughs> exactly. into podcasts. I think it's all doable. It's all doable. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm in, what, three different orchestras? <laughs> Very good. Well, it sounds like you're, you're on the way to becoming a podcaster, even if you don't admit it now. Um, but, yeah, by all, <laughs> means, by all means, appear on as many model rail radios as you want to. Um, because I don't really get a sense of the demographics that we're appealing to specifically, but just by appearing in these kind of forums, you can condense your own thinking about how to, uh, you know, how to do what you do with with your organisation in in a, a more public fashion. In terms of um, in terms of, uh, I mean, this returns really to the discussion that uh, Chris and I had a, a few shows ago. Talking about your own interest in model railroading, what specifically got you interested and what maintains your interest in model railroading? Um, I've always been interested in trains. Ironically, I cried on my first train ride. I found out the next day at the doctor I had an ear infection, but I loved everyone since. Um, I had the little Brio wooden push around trains as a toddler and then little battery powered engine with plastic track, you know, horribly of scale. Then when I was 10 or 11, I got an HO scale set that I set up on the floor and in the little plastic trees and buildings. And then I pulled out my dad's old Lionel set and put it on some green plywood and, you know, that kind of tin plate, <laughs> you know, blue paint for water layout kind of thing. But in terms of the hobby currently, I mean, do you like the electronics aspect? Do you like the the model building aspect? Do you like the carpentry aspect? I mean, are all these things part of your expression of a hobby? What 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 things draw you to it currently? Yeah, it's a I pretty much like everything. I like um, having the control. It's an own miniature world, and you're you know the king of this community of whatever size and you know you don't get to be king of the world in day-to-day life anytime around here and it's you know i think it's therapeutic and very relaxing to just run trains you know i just got digitrax dcc and i'm dealing with all that programming stuff which i'm not used to but we'll figure it out in time very good very good so in terms of the the community that you're a part of, you, you describe some kind of inner turmoil currently. In terms of the next few years, would you like to see a, a steady growth of, you know, 10% membership or this kind of stuff? I mean, what, what, what are your own growth expectations of the, the group that you're a part of? I would just like to see more people be actively involved. I mean, it's Naturally, you're going to have members, you know, as teenagers who are active for, you know, about five years, you know, they join up when they're, you know, 12, 13, you know, when they're old enough to do something and start, you know, building their own layout and so forth. And then, you know, high school comes around and then they go off to college and just get too busy. You know, there's nothing I can really do about that. Certainly. And in terms of other hobbies, do you get a sense of, similar hobbies that have these kind of, um, you know, youth organizations, particularly national youth organizations around them? Can you think of other hobbies that have a similar kind of uh, youth organization? Um, Not that I'm aware of. I'm 
personally into sailing and kite flying, but I haven't found any clubs for that. So there aren't sailing clubs. Um, yeah, it's certainly a natural Well, I'm level. sure there are. I just haven't looked for them. Yeah. I mean, I think my own background has been looking for things that are similar to what I'm doing, but never are exactly the same, and then kind of studying them and learning from their examples. So, I mean, certainly... Uh, there are a wide variety of engineering hobbies which I all consider, which I consider really mm-hmm. either building on or related to model railroading and stuff. Yeah, fashion. I have a couple little um, live steam stationary engines that I've built from kits, and I volunteer at a local electric railway museum and so forth. You know, there's not that much that you can do as you know a teenager without being 18 and having a driver's license. And I, I understand that. Legal reasons. Of course, of course. But in terms of youth clubs, it's interesting because what you're holding on to in some regard is something that I associate with the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s. The ability to have these national youth clubs are really a a creation of that time. A lot of the experiences that I've had with youth clubs uh, relate to a wide variety of things. You've mentioned sailing, you've mentioned bands and these kind of things. There are youth clubs associated with those things uh, as well. But the way in which they all work and the, the, the ebbs and flows that they experience, but all you, you can learn from all of that in terms of resolving issues that you see within your own uh, experiences with, with team model railroading. So certainly if you, if you have any time, maybe look slightly uh, laterally at other um, youth clubs and see what the experiences they have had, because I'm sure there are there's a shared theme with regards to all these kind of clubs. Does that make some sense to you? Yeah, I'm looking. I happen to be lucky. My uh, best friend and next-door neighbor got me into more or less scale model railroading as opposed to the Lionel tin plate. But, yeah, I'm looking and trying to find other people. You know, I'm uh, adding teen rail fans on Facebook and stuff like that, you know, doing whatever I can. Certainly. Yeah, the social networks probably offer, I mean, particularly, as you say, moving into your late teens, the social networks probably offer um, some some flexibility in terms of finding others. But the stuff, mm-hmm. that, the stuff that Chris and I were talking about with regards to his Christmas show, his local Christmas show, seemed to indicate that really the, the introduction to model railroading, as you've described, occurs prior to, to people reaching their teens is there, have you had any experiences with regards to teens that haven't previously had any contact with model railroading that, that pick up the hobby? Sometimes what I see a lot at shows is, you know, there's more or less two different kinds of shows. And Chris, I'm sure you've noticed this traveling around with your scale modular club, but you know, there are the families who come to take the little kids, you know, like 10 years, you know, little six, seven, eight-year-olds, and you have to see the trains and they stand there and watch the train go around and you know but then it's you know a few years before they're able to you know have the motor skills and you know sit down and put a little track together from a train set and you know put the wheels on the track and so forth and then you know you know just you know as people grow up you can't always predict you know what interests are going to stay the same? I know I've always had a slight obsession with trains. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Certainly. And also, I mean, the narratives that I've heard with regards to other people that have appeared on podcasts and writing and these kind of things seems to indicate that 
sometimes people gravitate to other teenagers in their area that have layouts or at least parents with layouts. So, I mean, I think there is a kind of, uh, as, as you say, a kind of community element um, that can be very useful with regards to uh, to getting teens involved. Chris, what's your thinking listening into this conversation? Well, getting getting the younger uh, crowd involved in the hobby is is problematic. Um, if if the parent, usually the male parent, isn't involved in in the hobby, or uh, an uncle or a grandfather or something, it's very hard for the young person to get the necessary exposure. There's kind of a critical level of exposure where they're pushed over the edge into. Uh, into the madness that is that is model trains and you know, it's one thing to see you know episodes of thomas on tv or or to have a bit of brio yourself but but when you've got when you've got the hands-free operation when you're when you're controlling it from a throttle and it's it's moving back and forth and especially with the advent of of uh, affordable digital sound systems to be able to to blow the whistle and ring the bell um, that that's the hook. That's you set the hook right there, and they're into it. But unless they get a chance, certainly at at, at most train shows, you will never see the general populace allowed to use or run the trains on the layouts. It's it's a it's a very passive thing. Um, uh, the only exception I've seen to that is there's a uh, there's a fellow that comes to the train shows here locally. Uh, called he uh, calls himself Papa's Papa's Trains, and he lets he's got it set up at about a foot off the floor, and all the young kids can come in and they get a chance to operate the train, and they get a little certificate as an engineer and and whatnot. Um, yeah, I so have get, something like that at a couple of local shows, and down at the Road Museum of Pennsylvania in Strasburg, they have it's called Stewart Junction. They have like a half scale. Um, depot built inside the museum and they have a variety of different layouts. They have, you know, the Brio and Thomas uh, and all the way up to um, you know, G-Skill what? with DCC and everything and you get a little certificate and that's, that's a really great thing yeah. that I certainly will remember for a long time. Well, yeah, but the, the, that's that's half of it, getting the interest level in the in the kinetic movement of the trains and, and uh, and whatnot, but I think where the big failing is these days is that kids in general do not—they're not taught any manual skills. Uh, there was very—it was a very rare thing to find a kid uh, of, of my age at the time that, that didn't build plastic models or balsa mm-hmm. models or kites or something. Um, yet now, when I talk to my my friends and and see their kids, they have no skill set. They don't know a glue bottle from a from a, a, a doorknob. It's 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 actually a bit disconcerting, you know, for the future because they haven't in the formative years they haven't had the ability to get their hands dirty, to make a mess, to to make a mistake. Um, everything is virtual. Uh, for them, really, uh, even toys like um, Lego or Meccano is very rare that I see that for anybody under the age of, well, period. I don't see them at all. As a matter of fact, all the friends that I can think of off the top of my head, none of their kids have 
anything like that as a toy where it's a manual, you build it yourself sort of toy. You have to go and find the nerds and the geeks, Chris. <laughs> what's that? You have to go find the nerds and the geeks and the you know the guys building toy robots and so forth. Here's another important point, Chris. Have you looked at a modern car engine recently? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. a modern car engine, as you describe it as well, my my in-laws have two F-150s, one from the 1970s and one from this decade just departed. They're completely unlike each other. You open the one from the 1970s, everything is maintainable. You can change the spark plugs, you can change the oil, you can remove the battery, you can do anything. And the modern one, there's this tiny plastic mm -hmm. ball in the center, which is the engine. So my concern is that the, the nature of this narrative with regards to the kind of children that have you know, manual interests and the way in which the world is packaged for us now is, is quite a complicated thing. It isn't just with regards to the youth, it's with regards to every aspect uh, of our society. What I find interesting, and this is something I've commented both to you, Chris, about and also to my wife periodically, is the fact that teenagers don't have the same kind of jobs. I mean, I'm 30 now. I'm in my 30s. And when I was a teenager, I had multiple jobs. I mowed lawns. I wrote software. I uh, babysat. I did a wide variety of things. You know, my wife and her sisters worked in fast food and did various things like that. Because these are now jobs that adults do. So I think the the nature of modern life is something which is distinctly different than even it was you know, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, skills like soldering, for example, or doing basic electronics, I don't think even adults maintain these skills now because the ability to do these things, I mean, in terms of the time it takes to, replace, uh, to repair an iron or something with, with basic solderable electronics, you can effectively purchase something in that kind of time frame, I mean, in terms of the kind of cost-benefit analysis. So we live in a very topsy-turvy time. I think the nature of hobbies will always be, and Ben put it very candidly with regards to the geeks and the nerds, but I think there there is still a, a group of teenagers that maintain these kind of manual hobbies and tinkering interests. I think they, they grow up to be engineers on some level, either engineers or academics or one of these, you know, one of these professions that also cultivates these kind of skill sets. But That's what I'm uh, hoping to do. Ben, it's been wonderful talking with you. I think in general, you, what you had mentioned about the the lack of a need or the lack of value to repairing something anymore, where uh, you know a kettle or an iron or a, uh, a typical household appliance is is usually thrown out rather than fixed. So um, there's a perceived uh, lack of. Well, actually, I get a perceived lack of respect for people with manual skills from from those who are, let's say, more highly educated. Um, they look look at them and say, well, it's sort of a blue-collar worker thing, lower class thing almost in some cases. And, um, you know, it's, it's more effective or efficient for them to go out and spend the other 20 or 30 dollars 
to to buy a replacement than it is for them to muck about with something they have already. Um, and in some ways, yes, I can understand that, as you say, from the cost-benefit perspective. But frankly, I, I find it um, an, kind of an anti-position for the current green sense that the world is, is trying to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Anything that you can avoid putting in a landfill is a good thing. Um, uh, I spent the summer learning how to repair internal combustion engines uh, so that I could have some equipment around the house here to do some, some work in the garden and, and rather than go out and buy a new one uh, in some cases. And uh, it's very satisfying to to bring something back to life and um, in the case of, you know, that sort of skill set translates into to everything that you do. Every, every time that the problem is presented to you, if you have the ability to analyze and, and formulate a solution and, and then implement it, that's, that's a good thing for society as a whole and for the individual for a sense of accomplishment. And in a hobby-like model, railroading, where you have so many different facets, whether it be carpentry or photography or painting or electronics or, or whatnot, uh, the, the structure building and drafting and what, that you can do so much. You don't have to do it all, but there are so many things that you can stick your toes into and, and, uh, and uh, enjoy and feel a sense of accomplishment, maybe that you don't get even at the workplace, maybe your your job might be a high tech job, but you only do a portion of it, and you never get to see the completed um, the completed item, and and you don't have that sense of uh, of uh, the the job well done. And now you can you can put some of your creative energy and some of your sense of well being into into these. Uh, uh, explorations of historic or mechanical uh, items like the, the trains and the buildings of a particular time or place. And um, I think we need to cultivate somehow this, this sense of, of doing in, in people rather than either uh, merely being a side uh, spectator in a virtual you know, entertainment where somebody else does all the work and you sit there and, and clap and cheer. Um, again, I'm, I'm having a bit of difficulty articulating this the way I'd like to, but I think we need to get up off, off our uh, proverbial butts and, and, and do things rather than just passively sit back and, and watch them happen or expect someone else to do it all for us. And I think something like model railways and and RC planes and whatnot, where you're you're building things for yourself, is a good thing overall. Not just because it's a pastime, but because the skills are transferable and um, and add to your your total uh, sense of self. I think it's more philosophy than trains, but certainly. And I, I, it's it's the it's the element of fear that I find fascinating. I mean, my wife regularly points out that I have very little fear when I come to tinker with things. 
And uh, whilst I'm surprised when I actually fix things, I don't have the fear leading into the kind of tinkering element. And what you're saying is exactly right, that basically the skills that you can pick up doing a hobby like model railroading can be applicable to other things as well. I mean, the carpentry skills alone, once you um, get reasonably good at building shelves and, and other things, you can actually use those skills in things other than constructing shelf layouts or table layouts. And I think it's exactly right what you're saying. It was wonderful actually having a chance to, to chat with Ben. When we move to the Saturday format, I know that Saturday format may not be good for you, um, Chris, on some Saturdays. Is it the same for all Saturdays, or was it just that uh, tomorrow that was particularly difficult for you? Uh, well, tomorrow I had a previous engagement, so I wasn't able to to wrangle my way out of it. So, Not a problem. You know, so um, for folks going, who have been who are interested in participating, um, the Saturday shows when we start up, which will start up around January 23rd, we'll look to do it at a wide variety of times, so maybe we won't uh, disturb parents or things like that. And it'd be wonderful to have Ben back on perhaps at a more civilized time for Connecticut. Um, to get his thoughts on, on these things and more. Unfortunately, Chris, it, because it isn't yet in the Saturday show format, we're probably going to have to round things off about now. Do you have any final thoughts for this show in particular? Um, I don't have anything. I don't have anything on my agenda to to put forth at this point. I guess uh, you know we we continue to talk about the, the shelf layouts and the various problems and opportunities they present. Uh, I know that uh, Steve in Chicago wanted us to mention uh, the, the problems and, and the opportunities for fastening turnout controls of either manual or uh, motorized to, to shelf layouts or foam in general, uh, how to accommodate things like that. And uh, Ben wanted us to talk about uh, the type of things you can do to sculpt the foam and the things you should avoid. Uh, and, I mean, these are all things that we have to discuss at, at some length. Certainly. Well, it future. sounds like a Saturday show maybe the, maybe be the ideal time to take on some of these things. And folks listening in, you too can ask questions. You too can suggest show topics. I recommend you go to the website, modelrailradio.com, or, and sign up to the mailing list where you can ask uh, Chris, myself, I believe Ben and Steve from Chicago are on the mailing list as well. Or alternatively, email me directly, tom at modelrailradio, all one word, dot com, and I'll submit your questions back to the, uh, the learned guests that we've had on so far. Chris, I know you, there are so many topics to be covered, but I think what we're doing here is actually setting out shows in the future. So for the next show... Turnouts and foam, do you think they can be covered in a single show or do you think we should just focus on uh, turnouts on shelves? Um, well, I, I think we can probably touch uh, on a number of topics that, that, that people have, have uh, put forward questions on regarding turnouts and the ways to control them, um, either motorized or manual, and how to accommodate things uh, like your turnouts and track on a foam base, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's the new thing to do, but it's not as stable or, or easy to fasten to as a traditional plywood or, or a pine base. So, yeah, we, sh we can talk about that certainly within, I say, the boundary of one show. But then if somebody calls in, we, we have uh. other topics to explore. That's, that's <laughs> the, you know. 
We can't complain, though, when people call oh, in. No. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about doing this, this show format. It's uh, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun, uh, and uh, again, I love talking about the hobby, and and uh, I'm not, uh, as I said, I'm not the expert. I don't even play one on television, but uh, I'm happy to if somebody wants my opinion on something, I'm happy to share it, and and I'm interested to hear what your progress you're making on on your shelf experiments. And I'm very interested, similarly, in hearing the progress that you're making with regards to the decisions that you have before you currently, Chris. I think uh, it's a, I mean, someone with your background and your quality of experience, although you're you're obviously humble about it, I find it fascinating that the the difficulty that you're finding in actually committing to a, a particular time, a particular uh, scale, seems to be pretty well replicated even with folks that have never laid a, a piece of track and are just listening to a lot of podcasts and reading a lot of magazines currently. So it, it, it does strike me as fascinating that you're, you know, you're, you're basically replicating what could be a relatively large portion of our audience with your own toing and throwing. Well, it's all good. This is the problem. It's all good. And, and every, every choice I could make has its own pros and cons and uh, you know if I want to sit down and analyze it like a like a stockbroker looking at a, an investment opportunity that's okay but is that the right sort of thing to be doing in the hobby is that is that making it too serious or too complex or too um, you know, it, as as a friend of mine is is want to say, uh, if we make the wrong mis- decision in the hobby, nobody dies. Certainly. It's not that critical. It's it's you know, if you if you make a mistake, make another choice to correct the mistake, learn from it, and and go on, and don't agonize to to the nth degree. You know, at some point in time, you'll have to to fish. As you said earlier, you'll have to actually fish and stop cutting the bait and and um, go on from there. And and I think if I by by taking the temporary um, uh, bent in my idea, I'm going to be fairly safe anyway because I'm not committing to a lifetime layout. I'm not committing to the basement filling empire that is ubiquitous in North America and almost. Un- unheard of in in the UK. Uh, so if I I can do anything I want and do it for two or three or four years, and at the end of that time I can uh, expand it or scrap it or give it away or sell it or donate it or something, you know, uh, and then go on with something new. And it's not there's no loss to it. This isn't a I'm not in the hobby for, it's not a business, it's not a for-profit enterprise, it is except in as much as I profit by the experience. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual gain rather than a monetary gain. Amen. And this is the, the church of that spirit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Testified. Well, Chris, it's been wonderful to have the chance to chat with you, and also it's been a pleasure to talk to, to Ben too. And I mean, I, I know I'll have the, the opportunity to chat with you in the future, but I'd also like to welcome uh, welcome Ben back on the show and Steve in Chicago. If you ever if you ever work out the the call in stuff, it would be wonderful to have the chance to chat with you in the show as well. Good night for now, Chris.
Well, good night, Tom, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you soon. Take care. Cheers.